You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. From lack of fresh produce in inner city stores to rundown homes with pest infestations and water leaks, where you live and work can have a profound impact on your personal well-being. On June 4th, the Washington Post brought together key government officials, doctors, and health experts to examine the impact of socioeconomic factors on the state of health. How does socioeconomic status impact human health? In this segment, we'll examine factors such as housing, education, access to fresh produce, and other environmental determinants, and weigh the cost of investing in preventative medicine versus managing disease treatment later in life. Let's listen. Hi. Uh, welcome. Um, I'm Martine Powers, host of Post Reports, the daily podcast here at the Washington Post. Maybe there's some listeners in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Over there. <laughs> um, I'm delighted to welcome our guest, Dr. Georges Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association, and Dr. Shariki Kumanika, Research Professor at Drexel University. Um, and during this panel, we're also we're going to be taking. Um, questions via Twitter. So use the hashtag postlive to submit your questions. Uh, I want to start with a statistic. So according to a 2017 medical journal, the richest Americans live an average of 15 years longer than the poorest Americans, which I think to some of us is really shocking to have a, a sort of, to, to see wealth quantified in terms of number of years of life. But to other people, I think it's actually just very validating that we've always known that there is a real life cost to being poor. Um, so Dr. Benjamin, I'm hoping you can just start by explaining what is that correlation between income and health? Well, you know, it's, uh, every community has this. You know, we, 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 we know this visually. It's called those folks that live on the other side of the community, other folks on the other side of the tracks. Every community has that. And, um, you know, it, it's real. Uh, even here in Washington, D.C., um, the, there's almost an eight to 10 year life expectancy difference between right where we are right now and Gaithersburg, Maryland, those of you in the region where I live. Um, and it's due to a whole range of activities. It's due to um, wealth. Um, wealth gives you access, um, your zip code gives you access to employment, housing, um, um, education, a whole range of services. And you heard uh, um, Bernard talk a bit about what they're trying to do from the healthcare system, um, but there's a whole opportunity to fix that um, from a social perspective. And Dr. Kumanika, can you explain how does race come into play when we're talking about disparities in health? Um, race is farther upstream than the factors of income and education. And you can look at the they're the behaviors that lead to health or the exposures to the environment that, that lead to health. And then there are the, the uh, immediate factors that determine those. But then you have to look to say, well, why is income low in some communities? Or why do people live in certain neighborhoods? And you get to race and discrimination. So the, the reason that race is in the picture is because race has been the basis for directing opportunities and resources or depriving opportunities and resources for people of color. And then it leads to the poverty, the education issues, and the lack of jobs and so forth. 
So then let's start talking about potential solutions. And, and maybe let's start with the government perspective. What can the government and policymakers be doing to address some of these kinds of disparities? You know, you, you heard that we're going to spend um, almost $4 trillion on, on health care, prospectively. And just remind you that, you know, I'm an ER doc, and it's very painful for me to mention that 80% of what makes you healthy occurs outside the doctor's office. It's a very painful understanding. Uh, but once you understand that, that means that there's some things you can do. You can spend a lot of time trying to get people to stop smoking um, smoker by smoker, or you can stop people from smoking in the first place um, by do, using a population-based approach. Uh, we know that, uh, yeah, you can, um, you know, treat every kid um, for lead exposure, or you can get lead out of the environment um, in a population way. Um, the solution to you know, homelessness is a house. Uh, and we know that um, once you get someone in housing, um, you stabilize them, and then you can provide effective health care to that f person. It's very tough to tra chase people around the city um, who are homeless. Dr. Kamenika, what do you think? Um, I think that we really have to go upstream and look at how we got here. So we have to, you know, why are certain policies um, prejudicial to, cer to, to certain parts of the population? It's not an accident. So if I say to you, um, poor people have poorer health, if, you know, you know that. If I say to you, why do poor people have poorer health, then is it the people or is it society and those opportunities. So when you talk about homelessness, where do we get these policies that allow certain people to have homes and go pretty far upstream to the causes of the causes of the causes? Because I think, I mean, the solutions that doctors have will not work if we just keep with the workarounds. If we, you know, if we fill in that gap today, we have to go and have permanent solutions designed very carefully so that we don't uh, repeat the, prob the mistakes of the past. Well, they weren't mistakes. Some of it was intentional, unfortunately. You know, <laughs> a lot of this was intentional. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, to, we have to face that, and we have to make policies that are going to be fair and give everybody an equitable chance, not an equal chance, but an equitable chance because we have to make up for past wrongs. I'm also curious, what do you think that doctors could be doing to take into account some of the, the social and economic factors that affect the health of their patients? Which, you know, as you sort of nodded to, doctors have not always been good about thinking about health in those ways. Well, you know, certainly, um, you know, you can write the social service consultant, you know, um, consultation, just like you write one for the OBGYN doctor or for the ENT doctor. Um, but if you really want to make a difference, then recognize the social conditions that your patients are in and engage in a collective way through your society um, and show up um, at the public hearing for the public health budget. Show up for the housing budget. Um, the doctors should be getting more involved in policymaking. Absolutely. And for all those doctors that say that it's not their business, I remind them that when they took an oath, that anything that hurt people or kills people is theirs. That means transportation, that means lack of housing, that means poverty, that means racism and discrimination. 
it hurts their patients because they're stressed uh, and stress changes your hormones and it results in really, really bad health outcomes. Yeah, I think doctors have an incredible amount of social capital. Um, and even though a lot of people like Dr. Benjamin in public health are doctors, it's the doctor in the white coat that people are thinking about. And that social capital must be used to influence policymakers. But the other thing that doctors can do is to use the access they have to real people to find out what do people need, what kind of policy should we have so that when they're designed, they actually meet people's needs as a whole. Because the average person who's socially disadvantaged has six or seven of these problems going on all the time. It's not just like they don't have a home. <laughs> if they have a home, they have other, thing, other needs. So I think doctors have both, could, could be on both ends of that, that spectrum. That they can serve as, as kind of a translator between the needs of the community exactly. and, and how it becomes enacted in yeah, policy. Exactly. Um, I also want to hear more from you, Dr. Kamenika. You know, a, lo a lot of your research has focused on nutrition. And I think that a lot of us hear about the concept of food deserts and that there are parts and cities that have less access to healthy, quality, affordable food. How do you see food policy and nutrition playing a role in changing some of these disparities? Uh, that's a great question. I think that food and, uh, and physical activity are two of the personal uh, behaviors that are related to so many um, of the problems, health problems people have. Uh, food policy has two, two goals. One is to make sure people get enough to eat, and the other is to make sure that they're eating the kinds of foods that are going to support their health. Uh, we have food policies that do part of, <laughs> part of these things, um, but we still are not ensuring that the food system is favorable to health because uh, food is, a, is commercially mediated, it's not a public good. And right now, when you put that, that supermarket there, for example, you've got to look inside, and you've got to see, are the sodas on sale the same day that SNAP benefits are you know, released on the cards? And what's, you know, what do people see when they come in? Is it the stuff that we think they should be eating, or they even think they should be eating, or is it the stuff that calls to them in other ways? <laughs> yeah. And so much of the rhetoric around this kind of stuff focuses on choices and making good choices and, and sort of shaming people for making, quote unquote, bad choices about nutrition. And I feel like there's not enough attention on the fact that a lot of those choices are determined by the ways that people's environments are telling them what they should be eating, what is most affordable, what is most efficient to buy for their families yeah. uh, for food and drink. Yeah, it's, it's true. We, um, if you take things to their illogical conclusion, uh, the food system can give people uh, foods and, and in quantities and market it in ways that make no sense at all from a health perspective. We're trying to get a handle on that because uh, the counseling that happens in the doctor's office, for example, won't work if there are you know, just hundreds of messages coming, say at children, all the time telling them that they'll be cuter if they eat a certain type of thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think we have a long way to go in getting everybody on board with a goal of health and seeing 
how can a food business make money supporting people's health rather than only just delivering um, you know, things that taste good because you know, it's, it's not working. Yeah. <laughs> so when we're talking about healthcare costs, should we be putting more money toward social programs? And what are the best investments for a comprehensive approach? Well, there's no question we need a new social compact in our country um, where we um, invest in those things that um, help people. You know, if you actually look at um, our expenditure as a country, the balance between health care and social services, there's a disconnect. Um, if you look at how we compare to other industrialized nations, well, we're at the bottom, I might add. We spend twice as much as they do, and yet we're getting the bottom of, their, of our health. Um, there's an imbalance between what we spend on social services and health. We need to rebalance that equation, um, not just within those two disciplines, but within our whole society, um, so that Can people... I there, why is there such a difference between the health, when you compare the U.S. to other developed nations, why are we getting so much less for what we're spending on? Well, you know, if you really look at why we're different from other nations, the first thing is we don't have a system with everyone in and, every, and nobody out. Um, we're the only industrialized nation in the world that doesn't have universal health care for all of its citizens. However you define it, however you pay for it, we're the only one that doesn't have that. We spend a lot more on treatment than we do on prevention. Yes, we can do amazing things uh, in treatment, but should we have to? Um, we don't spend as much on... Uh, as I said, the social um, compact that we need to do. And we have one of the most fragmented, complicated systems in the world, not in just how we pay for health care, but actually how we deliver it. Uh, and there's enormous opportunities for things to fall through the cracks, and they do each and every day. What are the chances that this is going to get better? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Churchill's comment is that we, we will try everything until... Uh, we finally get it right, whatever the, the actual quote is, 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 is the way we do it. Um, the reason we got the last health care reform was because uh, the status quo was not acceptable, and we're going to do the next health care reform when the current status quo is not acceptable. Um, but we're getting there. I'm curious how you see this changing over coming years, especially when it comes to things that we're still wrapping our heads around, like the public health effects of environmental changes and climate change. Is that something that you're worried about, the ways that climate change will affect general public health, but also specifically for poor and black and brown people? <laughs> climate change is the most pressing public health problem we have today. Mm -hmm. It's more dangerous than anything else we've got. Um, and yeah, I'm worried about it. Uh, I'm worried about more severe storms, including more hurricanes, more tornadoes, if you were in D.C. just yesterday, we had lots of, you know, severe storms in our region, including hail and high winds, et cetera. Um, that is not an accident. That's happening because our climate is changing, and um, we are part of it. And we actually know the solutions. The science is there. And we just have to press on it to try to fix it. And as you pointed out, the people who have the least, are the least involved in creating the problem, are the most impacted by it. You know, think, you know, New Orleans, think Houston, think um, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Um, you know, those are examples of the disparities that we're seeing. Dr. Kumanika, how do you see uh, oh, I, change I, I agree uh, totally. Um, 
besides the fact that climate change is our, our biggest problem as a whole, it is the most vulnerable, the people with the least power and resources who can come back from it. Because once a disaster happens, you know, guess who can go out and build a new house? Guess who can get their kids back in school? And guess who can't? So it's, it's, it's a general problem and it's a part of health disparities. And a lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, that's way off there. That's the North Pole and some polar bear that nobody cares about. And what about here? Well, here, Coming for us too. you have probably kids that are still not in school because the school was blown away and the community is not able to, to really create that again. Yeah. Um, we have a question from Twitter from Laura. She says, if you could have a set or points of data about this crisis, uh, the, the, the addicts, the demographics, or other patterns that you currently don't have, what data would help you make the most impact in your work? Well, for, for me, it's the timeliness of data. We're data historians. Um, when I was doing infant mortality work here in Washington, D.C., I was looking at data that was two years old. Um, we need to build data systems so they're timely, as timely as um, the, the grocery store in town, which can tell you exactly what's coming off his shelves because, you know, of the barcodes that are going through the, you know, the, the registers. Um, the problem with the, the public health system is that we're always doing data in the real, and that, that's a real problem for us. Um, I'm probably going to give an answer that uh, is, is not expected. I think we need um, history first to, to change people's minds about how we got here. So we have a lot of data, but sometimes when people see the, you know, who's worse off on the bar graph, they think it's their fault. Mm -hmm. So we can show that these things make a difference. But can we convince the sort of um, right-minded people that this has actually been created um, and needs to be looked at, at at a really upstream way? So you know, we have the data, but sometimes the data also make um, reinforce the idea that there's something wrong with the people who have the problem. So. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Um, but thank you so much, uh, Dr. Georges Benjamin and Dr. Shariki Kumunika. Thank you for joining me. Uh, I'm Martine Powers, and we'll have our next segment soon. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.